strapped in the trenches Making moves going all out Every day handle business You know that the hustle don't stop Got my team, let's get it Reviewing books and talk stocks Steady keep it moving So you gon' wanna tune in Get Lowdown, it's an app Get local food on demand Delivery right to your home Everything in the palm of your hand Took hard work and dedication Come through, join the conversation This is history up in the making We just wanna be an inspiration Hey, let's go Welcome to another edition of Bootstrapped in the Trenches. On this week's episode, we dive into adventure, no fear, and the art of storytelling, where we will also be reviewing Richard Branson's Losing My Virginity, which was quite the book, and he has quite the story. Uh, Without further ado... Let's dive into last night's food comas and what we have on the way today for dinner. Dan? Last night, I last night I had Italian food, and I have Indian on the way for dinner right now. Whoa, going heavy tonight. Going heavy. And that's after I did some video shooting at Zomama, and Mama was feeding me like crazy. Like I had a lot of dumplings earlier. It was great. That's what we call the quarry, getting fed at any place you go into. <laughs> yep. Do they call the lady from Zomama Mama? They do, and she loves it. Yeah, <laughs> Amazing. She calls herself Mama, too. <laughs> that is I actually awesome. also have Indian food coming tonight. I'm pretty pumped for that. Indian Monday. Oh, yeah. And then yesterday, I had Thai food. Um, I had some random dish I've never had before. I just tried something new off the menu. It wasn't too good. It was like a noodle. It was like a noodle soup dish. It had like crab and some pork belly. It was interesting, but it was, I shouldn't have got it for delivery. That's an adventurous delivery order, Corey. Talk about ballsy. It was like recommended, like supposed to be one of the best Thai places in the city. So I wanted to try something I wouldn't normally get. And uh, yeah, I went for it. Um, still in the fridge. Didn't eat it. Do you think that's one of those dishes that was like not really a delivery dish maybe? Or was it just yeah. gross in general? No, it wasn't. I think it just wasn't a delivery dish. That's something you get at the restaurant. I honestly didn't know what I was ordering. And yeah, at the restaurant, it probably would have been good for delivery. It just wasn't. That would actually be a cool thing thinking about it for us to highlight like some kind of like symbol for delivery dishes, like dishes that deliver well. <laughs> Seriously. That's some food for thought right there. It is. So I never what, get crab delivered. That sounds so gross. <laughs> I feel like Corey lost a bet and had to just order food from that place. <laughs> it was like a $26 dish. It was like really like authentic, you know, like it was chunks of crab meat. It wasn't like some fake shit, but yeah, just again, yeah, delivery crab, not the move. Did you follow it up with some frozen yogurt? I didn't, but I wish I did. Um, but I, I ended up just ordering uh, Greek food instead. Oh, nice. So you ended up redeeming yourself with like good food right after. Yeah, just a classic staple, just some chicken mixed grill, some hummus. And a little it did the trick. Greek. It, hit the, it hit the trick. It did the and trick. going completely 180 tonight with Indian. Yeah, just a little chicken tikka. Some brown rice. <laughs> I like it. You know, I had to stop doing Indian recently. Just, I don't know if it's the spices. I just get really bad indigestion from Indian food. Yeah, I think you're allergic to some <laughs> some kind of spices. I, I, without a doubt, am that I just fought <laughs> through for years and now I can't anymore. <laughs> uh, I last night I went hard in the paint with Japanese chicken katsu 
and some uh, udon noodles from Hasu Sushi, which was phenomenal. I also doubled down on those egg bites, veggie egg bites from Starbucks, which I'm, I'm going to be getting right now on the way as part of my double Mike Roland special. And I'll probably be going burger fi the veggie quinoa burger as a double whammy. And I might go a triple whammy tonight because those are kind of two small entrees. I've been liking going the tapas route lately and ordering multiple things. Yeah, you really got me in the mood for uh, for that burger five veggie burger. Oh, it's the best. It tastes like a Big Mac and you don't feel bad about it, you yeah. know? Um, but yeah, on that note, Dan, what do we got for uh, food news of the week or any news for that matter? Yeah, so I mean... I'm going to start off with what's obviously the most important news of the week, and that is this coronavirus that's going on. I mean, that definitely comes into food news. I'm I'm just kind of going back and looking at my notes here, trying to find where I have all the stuff about it. But um, yeah, basically, coronavirus started in the city of Wuhan in China, and as of Saturday, there's already... 1,372 confirmed cases and 41 deaths in China. And it started at a local seafood market there. And this was just something I read that kind of freaked me out a little. It um, Basically, this guy who's like a virologist, which I guess is someone who's an expert on viruses, he basically said that he was much more worried about this disease than he was about the SARS virus. This was one of the guys that helped identify the SARS virus. And he was quoted to say, I've never felt scared. This time I'm scared. And he's the head of the University of Hong Kong State Key Laboratory of Emergency Infectionist Diseases. So like just reading that kind of freaked me out a little bit because everyone's been kind of like playing this down and expecting or just claiming it's like not that big of a deal. This guy visits Wuhan and he was expecting to find this city on what he described a war footing, but instead he was met with a chaos and complete incompetence. And he said that he doesn't think the local government has approached this in the right way. And he's a little bit scared and obviously there's been a couple cases now in the United States for this stuff. And it's definitely one of those things that who knows what's going to happen. You know, I mean, yeah, that's what happens when you eat cooked bat. I I saw a picture of one of these girls eating a bat that they claimed was one of the culprits of this whole thing. It's like when you really think about that, a bat being cooked, like what are the odds there's going to be something in that thing? Uh, You know, like I think some of these, exotic animals that the Chinese have been known to use as a delicacy over the years. I I think there's some rhyme and reason to think about shifting that a bit. When you think about some of these widespread viruses, what they stem from, it's a bat. Really, we're not talking about cooking chicken here or, you know, a bad case of meat. It's bat. So (laughs) that, that makes you wonder where all this is really going. Yeah, it's scary, especially living in a, a big city like New York. I mean, it's just bound to happen, and there's definitely going to be cases reported here. Yeah, hopefully they can contain it. But yeah, that it, there's already been a bunch in the U.S. That's why the market was down what it was today. 
I uh, heard that there were cases in Denver and that there were cases in Seattle. Yeah, Seattle, I heard. I didn't hear Denver yet, but Denver. Yeah. That's right. Drive heard. out of here. It might have been that might have been false information. That was just like somebody told me that. I did not verify that at all. And <laughs> yeah, but there's no doubt China they're taking it to such extreme levels to the point where I was reading like most of the major cities have been completely shut down. And what's crazy is China kind of celebrates their main New Year's festival holidays, like at the end of January, like at the beginning of February. And it's the most travel time of year in China. And it's like tens of millions of flights that are taken. And there's certain cities like where this started, where they've completely shut it down. Like people can't leave, people can't come. And that's how it is in a lot of places. Like they shut down the Disney in Shanghai. They've shut down a lot of McDonald's. Like all the major corporations are just seizing operations all over China. Apparently like the malls are completely empty, which is an eerie sight. Like I was in China last year. These are malls that are the size of many cities. And you go in them and it's where like all the good restaurants are, all the experiences, everything. So imagine them completely empty in cities like Shanghai because everyone's just at home. Um, it's it's kind of it's kind of creepy. That is, yeah. yeah, that's bad timing with the economy. If a big holiday like that, you're going to have a huge impact ripple effect without question. Uh, I mean, especially when- Las Vegas. This is like the time of year. Literally, I mean, every single person of Asian descent is in Las Vegas gambling. They, they, it's crazy. If you ever yeah. ever been to Las Vegas in February, it's you know. It's pretty nuts. And it's not on, Corey. Maybe you could find great discounts in Vegas right now. Another thing you have to think about that China is going for it that, well, I am like half joking here, but they have so many ghost cities that they've built that no one are in. So when you think about like, oh, where are these people that are being evacuated going? There's giant cities that have never been occupied. So there, there's definitely places for these people when you really think about it. Um, to kind of add to what you were saying in Vegas, one of the things that was apparently going to happen, I'm trying to look up if it did right now, but was them shutting down Macau, which is obviously like where Steve Wynn has a lot of his assets. Macau is basically the Vegas of China. And I think I know I'm trying to look it up right now really quickly while I'm talking. So Dan, are you saying you should short Wynn stock? Well, no, that's already no. I mean, those stocks have already been slammed because of this. That's old news. What I am saying is maybe consider buying Alibaba stock because that stock, along with everything else, has been hit hard. And when you think about a stock that is going to probably do well in this type of situation, it's an e-commerce delivery site where people aren't leaving their homes. They need to get everything delivered. So, Alibaba. Well, as long as they're still in their homes. Well, no, they're not allowed. Like. They are in their homes. That's the whole point. They're not allowed to- like, What did you say? One of the cities got evacuated? No. I said that they're not allowing people to come into the city or leave the city. So like, people can't get on flights anymore to leave, uh, to like go visit other places, or like families that are coming in for the holidays can't either. Gotcha. And yeah. It's uh, definitely kind of crazy. So then on a lighter note, some less sad news- is a news that truly, really, really excited me when I saw these headlines. Oreos just came out with two new flavors. And 
Yeah, one of them is chocolate marshmallow, which just sounds wow. so delicious. The other one doesn't excite me as much, but it's caramel coconut. See, why would they do that? Like follow up. The first one's phenomenal. Stick with that. The second one makes no sense. That, that's really stupid. Caramel coconut? Yeah, like that's what an awful combination. Like who does that actually get pumped up? I, I think that appeals to a lot of people. I just hate it, caramel it, coconut. It's not for me, but... I know uh, Sarah's obsessed with both of those things. You know yeah. what, though? I, I get there's like everyone has their own taste buds and like tastes for that matter. And, you know, I, I get that. But when you think about an Oreo flavor, like for them to have a campaign around, oh, we're, we're battling s'mores here. This is phenomenal. Caramel coconut is something you roll out at a different time. Like that, why would you combine those two? Well, apparently, like what I was reading is Oreos have kind of been on a tear with coming out with new flavors. And this comes after they came out with like these pink Easter flavors. And this is like not necessarily new news that they're just coming out with all sorts of new flavors. I I think they screwed up the marketing of this thing. I get all the different flavors, but have its own shine, shining moment. You know, when you think of like that type of a flavor, it deserves its own time, really. I saw that, um, and this was a trend of 2020, is that there's going to be a lot of big brands collaborating. And uh, I saw Oreos is also coming out with, they're like doing something with popcorn. So it's going to be like Oreo, like mixed in with popcorn. There's going to be Twix popcorn. Whoa. And I love that, Corey. That sounds incredible also. Dan, I, you don't have to go to the movie theaters to get your popcorn anymore. <laughs> I also love that. I always naturally did that as a you know a natural food innovator. And when I used to go to the movies as a kid, I'd get popcorn just to combine the snow caps. I'm like, yeah. who doesn't it's like chocolate sweet. chips? Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, the Josh Rosenfeld was Butterfingers. He would put it in his popcorn. Of course, Butterfinger bites. Yeah, that doesn't shock me at all. Like Butterfinger bites on their own aren't enough. It's like Josh, you got to go in for the popcorn too. Oh man, I used to do the Butterfinger bites. I get that, but that's that's a bit much. Like it's one thing to have chocolate chips with popcorn, but Butterfinger bites and is and popcorn is too intense. I, I think that's a bit overboard. It's a lot of butter. We're not all nose. <laughs> Uh, so then I came across this other article that was kind of talking about like a food apocalypse. And it was essentially talking about like the different things that people already know, but that are really the main issues. And the stats that they were throwing out were kind of crazy. So obesity was one of them. And they said that by the end of this decade, half, well, it was 49%. I'm saying half, but 49% of Americans will be obese which I just thought was like a crazy amount. And then the other one was undernutrition, where basically they're saying that low-income to middle-income places, 45% of deaths among kids under the age of five are from undernutrition. And one in three families in those areas have a stunned child. And apparently like what's happening is people in those areas are loading up on just really, really high calorie sugar junk food that's just beyond terrible for you because it's really cheap. So that's just something going on. And then I guess the other one, but this was more of like the positive was the climate change. It was mainly talking about how this whole plant-based food movement is really going to save the planet if it keeps up 
on the pace that it's on. So that was a that was an interesting article. Well, that's more that's why these Impossible Burgers to me are more around than health oriented purposes. Because when you look at what's actually in this stuff, it's I'd rather be eating an Angus beef, and I don't even like meat. So yeah, it's still you, processed. You know, yeah, it's, it's just it's processed, it, and it's just the it's the environmental impact that's really getting people juiced up because it it definitely is a big deal there. But they're gonna have to change the way the like to me. It's like just eat a veggie burger at that point. If you're going plant based, it's much be- it tastes way better. Yeah, it's healthier. I mean, there's so much salt packed in these things. It's great. Yeah, it's great for the environment, but it, it really isn't all that. It, it, it's not even healthier. It really is terrible for your blood pressure, but great for the environment. I actually haven't even tried one of these plant-based things yet. At least not to my knowledge. There, like, so you could taste the salt, like literally in these things. It's like, oh, I could see why this is fake. Yeah, it's not great. Like anyone that's actually said to me, these taste just like burgers. It's like, have you ever had a burger? Like it, yeah. it doesn't taste anything like burger. It, it, nah, definitely not. It's just, it tastes more like a burger than a veggie burger tastes like that. That's what it is. Yeah. You know, it's just, if you're going in for the kill with plant, go all in with plant and have a real plant burger that actually tastes like a plant burger. I agree. When you I know? hear a plant burger, I just imagine like a dandelion in between buns. <laughs> like, not, uh, which is what you should have. Not far off. Yeah, that's what you should be imagining, like a turnip or something that's like not supposed to taste delicious or like where it's like, oh, it tastes like a burger. It's like, that's a problem. It's like beetroot and all this other shit. Yeah, and they make veggie burgers great now. Like they have some phenomenal hybrids with veggie burgers. They do. You guys, speaking of veggies, this brings me to my last news. Did you guys see uh, Nick Jonas had some spinach stuck in his teeth during the Grammys last night? I, I heard about that. I didn't see it, but that's so funny. Wow. Where's the floss? Yeah. It was pretty great. And then like he was getting blown up on uh, on Instagram and Twitter. And then he puts a post up saying, at least you all know I eat my greens. I, <laughs> I like it. Miracle. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think we have to add to the Kobe news, even though it's yeah. not food. The guy like sleeping on that. He was, you know, for anyone that I'm sure everyone already knows this, but he tragically was killed in a helicopter crash yesterday with his daughter and seven other people. And I was thinking about this last night there, especially not in my lifetime, but ever. I was thinking about famous athletes, icons that died tragically and Roberto Clemente and Thurman Munson, Dale Earnhardt, Payne Stewart, those four guys come to mind and to all due respect to them and their families, they're not even in the same stratosphere as Kobe Bryant. When you think about what type of global impact he made, like he was more popular in China than the US. And that's hard to fathom for us, but that like they're mourning him on another level there, the masses. And he, it's just crazy. The reason I wanted to also bring this up was because I was doing a lot of research on his life after basketball and with what we're working on in our business now with content creating and um, Colby started a company and, and just hit the ground running with it. And he was actually like Michael Wilbon talked about this um, when he was interviewed yesterday, reminiscing about Colby. He said what he was fascinated most by was the art of storytelling in life. And I think that was absolutely like amazing to hear. Be- obviously, music to our ears. But when you think about 
not only one of the greatest athletes and competitors, but greatest minds. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say that. The guy was, he spoke three languages fluently that we knew of, Italian, Spanish, and English. He supposedly knew German. He was learning Mandarin. Kobe like attacked everything like it was his last breath. And it's crazy that he was only 41, honestly, because he lived a life that most people wouldn't be able to get that type of accomplishments done in 150 years. And it's, it's very tragic, obviously, that they, him and his daughter died like that. It's also tragic we didn't have another 40 years of him really instilling his greatness on earth with his creations. That's what I was upset about when I like woke up this morning. I'm like, it's one thing to have a great athlete. It's another to have that continue to build. And he looked at the next 20 years as really something he wanted to look back down as more of a success than one of the greatest NBA careers of all time, which I thought was phenomenal. Yeah, he was just getting started. And even if you look at the, the uh, startups he invested in, every single one of them were killing it. Um, I mean, I think one of them was Klarna, which is like, there's, they work with numerous companies, but if you go on like a shopping website or even like, uh, if you want to book a flight, you can pay, you know, your flight or your trip or whatever you're buying in like eight different installments and it's powered by that company and they're just blowing up. And there's like, there's so many more examples of his portfolio. Everything he did was just gold. He owned, uh, I think 10% of that body armor drink. Yeah. Body armor. Yeah. That like he made, I think he turned 20 mil into a $200 million investment on that. But Mike, yeah, you nailed it on the head with everything you just said about it. It's obviously one of the biggest tragedies, I feel like, in terms of just a actual human being, not some sort of world catastrophe event or terrorist event or thing like that. It's one of the most notorious talked about things in the last 24 hours that I can remember, like compared to anything that's ever happened. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of like when JFK Jr. died yeah. on that flight when I was a kid, just like the news coverage. But, you know, yeah, I've never, my 33 plus years on earth, I've never experienced some kind of, like, Corey, you were the one that broke the news to us. When you texted me, oh, no, Kobe, immediately I knew he died without even looking anything up. I'm like, you've got to be shitting me. Yeah. And it was just like uh, one of those, you know, it, it's a weird thing because I was talking to Dan about this too. I never, I had zero relationship with Kobe Bryant. I never met the guy. He never met me. If I had died yesterday, he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't have missed a beat. But when you look at, you know, it's tough. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm mourning the guy because I'm not, but it, it, I appreciate what he did. And I think that says something. I'm not someone that believes in legacy personally. I don't think like that, but it's what he did to inspire people and his lasting impact. That is a legacy. And I think for Kobe, it was just about that's how he lived his life. He instilled that Mamba mentality in not only the way he did his day to day, but he wanted people that crossed his path to be like, wow, I need to be like that because like, why wouldn't you want to be? So I, I thought that was cool. Him winning an Oscar, like the guy just, he set the bar so damn high which is cool, us going into the Richard Branson book tonight because that's another guy that lives the way Kobe lived. 
when you think I was going to say it was like perfect. I mean, obviously not perfect, it was, but um, you know, it was just ironic and just crazy. After reading the Phil Jackson book, 11 Rings, you kind of just, you know, I wasn't thinking about Kobe that much until I read that book and started thinking about him again, watching highlights and just seeing how great he was. But then, yeah, the Richard Branson book, which we'll talk about after, you know, he was just a daredevil and literally lived, you know, every single day. Like, like it was his last, he would, balloon through the country and do all these crazy things and you know kobe just dies in a freak helicopter crash when you know richard branson was doing just crazy shit every single day and yeah yeah. shows how fragile life is and unpredictable why you know you got to just go for it why literally like what's what do you have to lose that what do we have to lose nothing exactly take risks yeah so yeah, Corey, and uh, a lighter note, but what are the food for thoughts? I know we big besides that tragedy, we obviously do have the Super Bowl this weekend. So, yeah, so there's a lot of food there, huh? Oh, yeah. So food for thought. Um, I wanted to obviously, I know we a couple of weeks ago, we touched base a little bit about Super Bowl when I was talking about wings, but I want to dive um, headfirst into it this week. Um, and just talk about what people consume, how much they consume, and just a couple fun facts. So we'll start with wings. Uh, people consume 1.3 billion chicken wings pretty much every year on the Super Bowl, but that's what it's expected to be on this Sunday. So 7% of the year's chicken wing sales come from Super Bowl Sunday, which is insane. How many of those um, come through our uh, sites? <laughs> I, I wish all seven. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's 162.5 million pounds worth of chicken. So that's about- wild. Yep. So 11.2 million pounds of potato chips will be smashed. So with uh, so many choices for chips and dip, um, this highly processed snack will be consumed by millions of people. And then I went to talk about um, avocados. So 139.4 million pounds of avocados will be purchased. And obviously everyone knows it's for making guac. 3.8 3.8 million pounds of popcorn will be made. I thought that was interesting. I never had popcorn for the Super Bowl. Me neither. You guys have. Get, your, get your popcorn ready. And we can maybe mix it with some Oreos, some Twix, or Butterfinger for Joe. I wonder if T.O. spurned that movement. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it's weird. I feel like if it was on the table, I would never go for it. I, I'm, I mean, definitely not. I'm not touching popcorn at a group uh, Super Bowl party. I don't know where those hands have been. I'm not big on that. Like going for those group snacks. I dive in. <laughs> Another weird one. <laughs> the other weird one I thought was interesting was nuts. So we'll eat 3 million pounds of nuts on Super Bowl Sunday. And yeah, maybe it's a healthy snack. I feel like Super Bowl Sunday, you kind of veer away from the healthy snacks and you just go full beast mode, if you would. Corey, you think a lot of that is bar nuts we're talking about or like nuts people lay out at parties? I think it's both. I mean, that's a good point that a lot of people do probably watch Super Bowl at a bar, although that would frustrate the hell out of me. I've never done that. Uh, You know what? That's another interesting food or just in general topic is... Every time I watch the Super Bowl, it's either at like someone's house, they're having a party, and I'll never get a good seat. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and you never really get a good seat for the Super Bowl unless you're hosting it. 
it believe it or not, like you're, you're resorted to standing a lot of the time. Yeah. I watched the Eagles Patriots Super Bowl, the one where, or was it the Patriots that the Eagles beat? Nah. Yeah. Who did the Eagles no, beat? Yeah, it was. Patriots. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, the Patriots. I watched that at a bar in Breckenridge. And it was awesome. Like we had like this prime time table and we were like hanging out with these random Eagle fans and you know, it it was, it was actually really badass. Yeah. I mean, that sounds awesome. Yeah. I guess I've only really watched it at like people's house parties and it always kind of just sucks. That's a great point, Corey. The only times I've actually remember sitting down is when I've been at the Super Bowl. That's the crazy thing. Like any, any year that, that I'm not present, the last two the Giants were in, I, I can't even think back to when I was sitting at all. I've always been standing. Right. Interesting. And then a couple more here, guys. All right. So we'll drink 325.5 million gallon, gallons of beer, which is a shitload. Uh that's about 50 million cases roughly. And that's enough to fill an Olympic sized pool. Um, How many? It's enough to fill an Olympic sized pool almost 2000 times. Wow. How many of that do you think is going to be in the state of Missouri alone? I was about to say Kansas city, but then I realized that that's not a state Kansas, not Missouri. What am I talking about? Yeah. Kansas. Yeah. Oh man, I mean, I feel like it's a, a big portion of that's already in Kansas. <laughs> I can't even imagine. It's at least twenty percent. Yeah, yeah, twenty percent. <laughs> I mean, I have no idea. Probably uh, not close to that. It, but it's probably not even like one percent. Because it's Missouri too. It's not like it's like Texas. If the if it was the Cowboys, you know, that would be a bit of a different story. So wait, is it Kansas or is it Missouri that the Chiefs play? The Chiefs play in Kansas City, which is in Missouri. There's this awkward, there's this awkward pause right now. Me and Corey, are yeah. like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, did you not know that? Well, that's what, I, that's what I originally said. I was like, okay, I said Missouri, and then I was like, wait, no, Kansas. But I, I'm a little confused. I, I did Kansas know that. Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I know a, everyone gets tricked with that with Kansas. I what guess. a what a dumb name for a city. Like they should call it Missouri City. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. It, just like the Rams and Cardinals, that whole St. Louis, Arizona thing, LA. It just it's like the conference is switching teams and numbers. Where the that Big would, Ten's not the Big Ten anymore. They have that would be like teams. that would be like if Jersey City was in Pennsylvania. Well, it's like right. Giants. Well, think about it. The New York Giants and New York Jets play in New Jersey. That's different, though. They're not named after like a city in New Jersey. But that's, that's confusing still when you think about it. It is. That is yeah. confusing. East Rutherford, New Jersey, and they're the New York. So, yeah, I feel like a lot of people outside New York don't even know that and Jersey. They have no idea. And B- Buffalo, how many people actually know Buffalo's in New York? None. In that area. You know what I mean? How many NFL fans have no idea what state Buffalo is in? And they should. That's where Rob Gronkowski grew up. Right? Well, I didn't know that. Another fun But yeah, Buffalo, people probably think is its own state, actually. Because, like, where else would it be? It might as well be. It's yeah. so far north. <laughs> I know. And yeah. Coming down to it, a couple other fun facts, real quick. Um, 2.37 million will be spent on soda this year, 12.5 million pounds of bacon will be consumed. 10 million pounds of ribs will get all over people's faces and 8.2 million pounds of tortilla chips will be eaten. 
Wait, when you said get all over people's faces, is that just like the sauce factor that gets left behind, or are you making a joke? I was just making a joke there. <laughs> but he's dead on with the sauce factor. I mean, yeah, there's no doubt. Yeah. And then what I found interesting when I was doing this research is that they say that people eat so much during the Super Bowl because um, – they're actually it's called they're it's called distracted eating and emotional eating. So they're either vested into the game and they're obviously distracted by everything that's going on. So they just keep eating even if they're not hungry. <laughs> that's um, something. I mean, I, I that's like when I go to the fridge out of boredom, I'll just go and open it, and then it's like, wait, what am I doing here? Yeah, it's the same thing in a movie theater. It's like, all right, let me get all this candy. You're invested into this movie you're watching, and you get distracted and you just keep eating. And what is it? You know it? It's an oral fixation. I think that's what this comes down to. I haven't been to a movie theater in, like since we all went to that NWA movie, Straight Outta Compton, whatever, like wow. eight years ago. I think that was I, a lot. Yeah. I went to this new this thing called the Cine Bistro, and it's literally it's like a dining experience. They have servers and waiters, and they bring you cocktails or whatever you want, but they have like really good food. And I saw that new Adam Sandler movie. It was, it was pretty good. Do they have What'd you say? Do they have Cinnabons? <laughs> no, it's more, they had like really weird, like they had like buffalo cauliflower, like pork fried rice. They had interesting things. It's like high-end dining. Love it. That's a cool thing. Yeah. I heard that Adam Sandler movie was pretty sick. It was pretty awesome. I'm excited to see it. And uh, well, yeah, guys, you know, with the story, the whole art of storytelling with the Kobe situation ironically and tragically but we were actually talking about that anyway with Richard Branson's book tonight but beforehand we figured it would make sense to go over some of our own war stories from over the days with the B-Town uh the Bloomington the Boulder the Denver days we've all had so many crazy times together and you know on our own in different circumstances over the last decade plus Figured it'd be cool to reminisce and go over some stuff. Uh, I guess, should we start with me just going over some B-Town things here? Sure. sure. Should, should, we, should we do one at a time? Like, you tell a story. Yeah, Corey. sure. I love yeah, keep, keep rotating. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that my most memorable, I want to start with that one, which Corey was involved in. We'll never forget this. Um, we reached out to Indiana basketball. This was during the heart of the Kelvin Sampson, the, like the scandal had just really begun. And Corey, I think it was like right when it was like about to be released that that like shit was hitting the fan. So yep. we figured like, oh, we have nothing to lose here. Let's hit up the basketball team. We, we got their email online, whatever, hit them up. And the uh, assistant coach emailed us back. We basically hit them up saying we'd love to cater uh, a pregame meal one night and we suggested before a, the Miss State game, which was the biggest, I think it was homecoming. It was college, game, game, college game day. College game day. So the whole like team was in, uh, you know, th- getting ready. It was All-Star weekend, too, I remember. The NBA All-Star game. So it was a really big weekend. And the coach literally got back to us pretty quickly, within a couple hours, and said, oh, yeah, that, that would be great. Uh, and literally gave us like a time and address to meet him. We coordinated, I think, Jimmy John's sandwiches back then. And uh, pita pit and pizzas. Pita pit and pizzas. All right, that was it. And 
Yeah, it was me, Corey, uh, Corey's buddy, Andrew Kleeman, who worked for us, and our friend Scott Heitner, who also was helping out back then, the NUR. We'll get him listening one of these days. But uh, it was awesome because I don't think going in, Corey, we really knew what we were in for. We figured we're going to just be a couple delivery guys showing up at you know, a house and dropping off some stuff, maybe giving a head nod to DJ White or something and feeling yeah. But yeah, it was remarkable because we get to this like secluded area in the woods. We we had never been to this part of Bloomington. And this van, like this uh, Jeep meets us, one of the coaches, and then directs us to where the house was. So it was like almost like this feeling of like exclusivity, like, oh, IU basketball, which is godsend in that town when you think about it. When you go to Indiana University the first thing you find out about is Hoosier basketball. Like I wasn't an Indiana basketball fan before I got to IU by any means. But the second I stepped foot on that campus, cream and crimson was the name of the game. So this was uh, my senior year, I believe. Corey was a freshman. Or Corey, yeah, yeah, that was yeah, 2008. Uh, 2008. So this was when B-Town Menus was really starting to gain its swagger and people knew about it. So... We get to the house with the food, me, Corey, Andrew, and Scott. We go in, and right away, this was unbelievable. Kelvin Sampson's wife welcomes us in with open arms as though we were like long-lost children of hers. Tells us, like, oh, come set everything down. And I, I back then, if you recall, I still was in the sports announcing mindset a bit. And I, I really was like enamored by analysts. And I, I thought I was in a dream. I walk into the kitchen and Jay Billis is sitting there right at the just <laughs> literally just like he had a Coors Light. I'll never forget that. A can yep. of Coors Light. And it was remarkable because he, he literally was just happy to talk and talk to us like we were just friends of his. Like this guy was a, an incredible human being. I hope I get to meet him again. We, I, I remember getting him laughing. Um, I, I made a comment to him, I believe, about the whole Corey. It was right after the uh, Super Bowl, right? Yeah, when I yep. saw Archie Manning. Yep, I, I literally specifically remember that. Yeah, so I got Jay Ellis to laugh, which to, I'll never forget that. But somehow the story about seeing Archie Manning telling him thanks for having Eli on the flight, and I told Jay Billis I wanted to be in broadcasting, and told me I had a good voice. Like he was the man, Corey. You loved him. Dude, it was awesome. And then, I mean, just to add real quick, the, that was during the time when Indiana was really good. We had one of the hottest prospects um, for the NBA. It was Eric Gordon. Yeah. And, you know, we had a chance to go far in the tournament. So, yeah, we got there. The coolest part was they led us to the basement first. And the basement was literally a mini assembly hall. So the wood floor, oh. they had everything. The, the floor was just assembly hall. And remember, and they, they had, had a, the projector up with the NBA All-Star game on. Yeah, and they were watching pong junk table. Like a, a, yeah. it was awesome. Like Dan, this place was set up for like Hoosier hysteria. You would walk in and you see all this stuff, all the memorabilia, all the history of Indiana. It was really like a mem- an experience any college student would dream of. Yeah, this that sounds- we got to just partake in, and that goes back to though the whole when you were bringing up it can't hurt to ask a, a couple episodes ago. That's, you know, and Richard Branson had a lot of that we'll go into in a bit, but we just hit them up. Why not? And look how it ends up leading to a memorable experience we'll remember forever. 
Not only so, that for me, I, I wasn't even I wasn't getting paid my freshman year because I was just I was just working for B Town Menus and, and helping Mike out. And an experience like that, I was like, wow, this is fucking awesome. Like, you know, I want to keep working for this company. Hopefully, something comes out of it. But it was a startup. It was newer college kids, and seeing something like that, I was just like, this is awesome. And I want to. I, I, I remember that being inspiring together for the both of us, like as a bonding experience. So where it's like, wow, like look what we could do here. Yep. Like it was a really cool moment because it was like, man, like this is something. And seeing all the players and they let us chill there for over an hour. Like we didn't get kicked out. We just voluntarily were like, all right, guys, let's get out of here. Which yeah. I so cool. Like we thought we were going to be showing up and just dishing off stuff. Calvin Sampson was a great guy. I'll never forget that. Like he's a great person. So is his wife. And uh, Jay Billis, hopefully we can get him on this because he will remember that. I guarantee you. He's a very sharp guy. And if we brought that up, he'd be like, wow, okay. uh, It'd be cool to get him on because he's had quite a life, that guy. And I'd love to hear his thoughts on Daniel Jones' future. Yeah, I bet Calvin Sampson would definitely remember it because it was right before he was about to get kicked out. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was, but yeah, that I I had to start off with that because that that was uh, what stuck out. That's That's a good one. That's gonna be that's gonna be tough to have any stories follow that one up. That's like even entertaining. But that's- oh, by the way, we we crushed Miss State the next day, so I like to think we were good luck. Yeah, nope. we definitely were. That was big. So who's next here? Uh, Corey, go for it. All right. Well, yeah, that is tough to beat. I was going to just do a regular little India story, but I'll save that. So I'll start with. Um, Right in the thick of things, when we got to Denver, um, things were picking up and we started doing delivery. And during that course, uh, Mike and I and Dan was really heavily in Boulder because Boulder was just blowing up with our own delivery service as well. So Mike and I would have to do a lot of deliveries as well as our friend Sean, who just in Denver, just hanging out. But he was the man. He would always help out. And um, we got an order to the Denver Broncos stadium, but it was the off season and it was lacrosse season. I guess they play in the Broncos stadium and the stadium's huge. So I, I get there. I'm like my, it's my first delivery ever. I just got a car because uh, we needed help doing deliveries. So we're, I was able to get a car and I'm taking this delivery. I cannot find the girl at all. So I call the customer and she's like, oh, like she directs me exactly where she was. Um, and I finally, I find her. She literally gives me a tour of the whole stadium. I'm like, I got to do more deliveries. I'm trying to get out. Like, this girl won't let me leave. And then I get back to the apartment and I just get a message of this girl's breasts. And uh, I was like, whoa, I don't understand. And then I realized like I did give her my number to I called her because I didn't know where she was so that's how she got her number she just sent me a picture of her boobs and I was like this is crazy this is my first delivery <laughs> talk about an intro into the industry it was an intro to the industry it was an intro to Denver and um yeah so that's that was my first story with Denver that's amazing I've never had something even remotely close to that happen when I was delivering food I'm just gonna throw, I'm just gonna throw that out there <laughs> 
Um, the, all right, the, those are both good things, man. I'm, I'm gonna, I gotta pick one out here. You know, let's go back to basketball, and this this doesn't even necessarily have anything to do with hungry buffs. But when I was living in Boulder, I had season tickets, and I was like second or third row behind the visitors bench, and I used to go to all the games, and I would get. Rowdy. I'd be that guy getting under the skin of the opposing players, making comments when they were on the bench, like appropriate things. Nothing. I wasn't like cursing or anything like that. I was just trying to be funny. And you guys know Alan Crabb, right? He's in the NBA now. Yeah. Well, California, Berkeley, California, Pac-12 team, they were playing at Colorado, and it was a year that they were stacked with freshman talent. And that was the year that Alan Crabb was on their team. And Alan Crabb was not having that great of a game. The buffs were kind of rolling over California. And there was a point where Alan Crabb was on the bench and I was doing my thing, you know, just kind of like just chirping at them. And it was obvious I was like kind of getting under their skin because they kept turning around and like kind of acknowledging me, which was something that I, I used to love trying to make the opposing players turn around, acknowledge me. I, I got a ton of stories about that. But then one of the guys on the coaching staff, who was probably this like 27 year old, what looked like to be like a 250 year old linebacker with like dreads. He looks at me and he like points at me and he's like, listen, kid, if you don't sit down and shut your mouth, I'm going to come back there and shut it for you. <laughs> wow. isn't, that isn't that crazy? I yeah. love that. I, you'll never forget that, obviously. I'll never forget that. I actually had a couple encounters with similar types of situations. That was only in-person one, but I used to also have like an ESPN account where in the comments section of the games, when the buffs would have like big games coming up, I'd get in the comments section and start going at it with people. And there was a time where I started to get into this argument with this player on University of Arizona called, his name was Chol, like C-H-O-L. And he was kind of like a sixth or a seventh man and i was just telling him like you know letting him have it that he was like a six or seven man not even a starter and my name on there was hungry buff and he goes he writes he was like listen hungry buff he's like i don't know who you are or where you're from but he's like but i will find you and i will kill you <laughs> Damn, that's amazing yeah wow. that was great you're like pft commenter before his time hey, really did you get kicked out for a band from the stadium for a year Dude, that's one of my stories. Uh, I'll tell that on the... If you want, I'll just tell it now since we're... Yeah, like, go in. Why not? Go for it. All right. Well, that wasn't actually... It wasn't from the stadium. So what happened was the year after I graduated college, you know, our sites were just like blowing up and we were hitting it hard with the grassroots marketing, passing out stuff all over campus all the time. And that was a year where I was just more relentless than ever because I, I wasn't in school anymore. And I had gotten a couple warnings over a really short amount of time from the police about how I wasn't really allowed to be doing what I was doing. And I was marketing in places I wasn't allowed to be marketing. And I need to get permits and things like that. And the problem with the permits was they were obtainable, but they were limited. So if you had a permit, you could only really market in like these generic specific spots on campus. I wanted to get into like the good spots. So fast forward a few days after my most recent encounter, which was like two encounters back to back, I was passing out t-shirts in front of the C4C and I encountered the same cop. And he actually came up to me, handcuffed me 
And I ended up not only getting a ticket, but getting exiled from the entire University of Colorado campus for a full year, where legally I was not allowed to step foot on campus. I wasn't allowed to attend any basketball games, football games. And it was this whole deal. They wrote me up in front of all these students. I had like two boxes of Hungry Buff shirts next to me. The students were going nuts in a way, like trying to rally around me. It it was kind of funny. That's quite a badge of honor, if you ask me. Like, I think that is awesome. Well, I just hate that. Like, come on, for the cops, like that. It's just a student literally trying to make a business work, and you're just going to arrest like a kid who's just hustling. Such hating, right there. It was full on hating. But maybe we should uh, stage that exact scenario to happen again for some marketing buzz. (laughs) Right. That would be really funny. That would be. I think that would get a rise out of people too. Yeah. Right. Definitely. I remember one, well, this wasn't really one of the stories, but I remember we got uh, threatened for sound pollution with uh, the air horn. Davis. Big things, Davis. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, I was driving around and he kept like out of the window, like airing it. The megaphone. Yeah. Yeah. The megaphone. And that, that's the story I want to talk about next, actually. We used to, with uh, Indiana Dance Marathon, it's this huge fundraiser for children's cancer the frat and sororities do around the country. And Indiana's is one of the largest. And one of the perks with B-Town Menus, we have always done sponsorships with them. And when we were in the market, Corey and I used to be able to go ham with our t-shirts and go up there and just blast out t-shirts. I think, do we have a t-shirt gun one year? I, I no, I remember you throwing them out when you I gave threw them, them out. Like I, I, like my mind went in the mode of like, oh, was I blasting those out of a t-shirt gun? But no, we were on stage, uh, in front of like literally hundreds of kids, maybe even a couple thousand that were all cheering mm-hmm. E Town menus, thousands. thousands, and that was a really cool experience for me because I got to do public speaking on a level of oh, this is masses. So. For me, it was just a comforting level of just working on that craft more where it's like, oh, I'm getting in front of large audiences here with our brand that we've been building. And this is a cool experience. And it was just a great way to rally around the, you know, all the frat and sorority kids, hook them up with some pizza. Corey always did a great job lining up all of our clients to give us free food for the event. And we'd show up with t-shirts and go on stage and just be tossing them to all these cheering fans, we felt like we were rock stars, really. It was pretty yeah, cool. We were, we were feeding hungry people that were just dancing for hours. Yeah, they were on their feet, like literally for over 24 hours. So that that was a lot of fun. And I, I think we'll always remember that one. Um, so yeah, another story about Denver. Not Nothing too crazy, but um, we used to do these food handouts pretty much every single day. And whether it be taco bars, um, pizza, at one point we were doing salad bar. Well, it was salads. It was a whole catering setup from Tony P's in Denver. Shout out Tony P's. Um, but it was there, this was a one of the events. We always had a great turnout, and I forget the uh, which what apartment it was. It's bothering me, but whatever. We had a huge turnout. I had a thing of salad. We had pizzas. We had like meatballs this whole ton of catering thing. And I was by myself for some, I think Mike was doing another event. I think you were at seasons of cherry Creek. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, I, remember I was at the other one and you had me up. I remember that. 
Yeah. So anyway, I'm far at this point from Tony P's. I picked up, I'm, I'm doing the whole thing by myself. I'm trying to market and I forgot the salad dressing. They actually just didn't give me salad dressing. So they did give me a big bowl of marinara and I was just convincing every single person in line because for some reason people were literally getting salad. I just convinced them that the marinara sauce was actually for the salad and it's a spe- like a specific type of Italian salad and you can put the marinara on it and people were just doing it. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's like this hot marinara sauce. <laughs> but yeah. That power of improv. It worked. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's crazy. I uh, I got another one that was kind of a time we got back at the cops. That was after I had gotten exiled. It was a different cop, but this was wild. This was actually a really cool cop that really could have gotten me into a lot of trouble and didn't. So we used to do, or we still do, but we do these tailgates once a year at the CU-CSU game that takes place at where the Broncos play in Denver. And it's a whole hoorah thing. There's a student parking lot where the CU fans tailgate. The CSU, the CSU fans are tailgating at like a separate parking lot, but it's kind of in the same area. And it's just, it's, it's crazy. It's a whole hoorah thing. And we do a big, a big cookout where we'll be cooking up tons of burgers, t- tons of hot dogs and feeding people. And it's always really cool. And we always have like a big team of college kids helping us. And two years ago, or actually this was four years ago, we had three girls bring water bottles that were actually filled with vodka that were working for us. And I'm, and I'm sitting there, you know, flipping these burgers, just really feeding the masses. I'm talking like we would give out like a couple thousand pieces of meat. At these things. And all of a sudden, these two cops come up to the table to get fed. And I'm cooking these cops' hot dogs. And I'm literally just shooting the shit with the cops, like just having a good time. And all of a sudden, one of the girls who at this point, I didn't even know that she had brought vodka in. She throws up all over the cop. Like she's standing at the tent behind the table and just projects vomit, like, you know, vodka vomit all over the cop. And the cop like looks at her and like kind of looks at me. And I like kind of shrugged because I had no idea what was going on. And then the cop looks at the other cop and he's like, man, boulder kids and just walks off. And I was like, oh, man. God, the- <laughs> right. Kids. Yeah, that yeah. could have been a disaster. Could have been a disaster. The girl didn't even get in trouble. The cops like literally just kind of walked away and were really cool about it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Nuts. I know. That was crazy. We actually had another employee who uh, threw up all over me. I won't, I'm not going to tell that story, but I won't mention his name either. Uh, I, if he listens, he knows who it is. Well, I feel like you got to tell the story now. Maybe use fake names. <laughs> I'll tell it next after. <laughs> it's my turn. Uh, let's see here. What else do I have? Um, oh yeah. So we had the idea, like, you know, I got obsessed with the notion of us trying to break a Guinness world record at one point. (laughs) So we were, uh, Corey helped me organize. Basically we were able to convince IU to let us, it was, I was, was it the soccer or the football stadium? Football stadium. Football stadium. So we were able to, and this was pretty cool too. Again, us just having the cloud of 
going for it. No fear. We were able to coordinate getting it for free because we we worked out a philanthropy with this um, shoes. Like, the, what was it? The uh, uh, something, uh, whatever it was. Uh, in- shoes on your feet. It was something about shoes on your feet in Africa, where yeah. every ticket that we got, every person we got there, there would be shoe one pair of shoes donated. Pair of shoes, yeah. So that was really cool. We actually coordinated with this guy that ran this foundation that's from Africa for the whole thing. I believe the record, we were trying to set the Guinness World Record for largest dodgeball game. And the record was like 600-something people. We didn't hit it, unfortunately, which I was bummed about. In hindsight, I think... We, I, I think we got at least like 300 something people there, Corey. It was packed. We, yeah. yeah, we didn't hit it, but it, like, it was packed. It was a good turnout. Which was a really cool experience when you think about it. It was for a good cause. We were getting a lot of people pumped up and, you know, we didn't hit the record, but it was just cool even having the arena to go for that. Figuring, hey, we're in a big college rah-rah town. Why can't we try to attempt this? So on that note, it'd be cool for us to try to hit a Guinness World Record with our team of some kind. Whoa. Yeah. Food for thought. That would, that would be cool. There we go. Um, well, I guess <laughs> I guess I'll tell well, I had a um a different you know what? I, I'm gonna tell a different story. I had a different story in mind. It was actually not in Denver. This was when we were expanding and we were in Lubbock, Texas, Mike and I, and we were handing out we we do door hangers and we would just knock them out to put on every single person's door and me and mike decided to uh, let's try this at uh 6 p.m in texas in west texas <laughs> on a random night and we split up and we we're just hammering away i mean we were doing this for a couple hours at this point and we get to the, we're in this like shady neighborhood and i get to this one door and i hear Door, like a dog come and just barking and I, I put the door hanger on I sprint down the stairs we're in these complexes that have like they're like three levels and you have to go to each row walk up the stairs do each one all of a sudden I'm it's starting to get pitch black and a dog is like a huge dog is chasing me and I literally just run for my life until I ended up finding Mike again but it's crazy we're also in the territory where if you're on someone's property they can just shoot you so yeah, we're out here trying to launch a market, just risking our lives. <laughs> yeah, and almost getting launched at. <laughs> yeah, literally. That's wild. The whole yeah, launch yeah never a uh, door hang in the dark, folks. Especially in a state where you can carry yourself. <laughs> yeah. So we uh, this was like five or six years ago now, but there was like the infamous a hundred day or a hundred year Boulder floods. And what that means is apparently every 100 years, Boulder gets this huge flood. And it was happening this time. And there's this lake that's like probably 30 minutes drive away in a town called Netherlands. And the rumor is if the flood gets bad, the dam at the lake breaks and it would wipe out a lot of Boulder. And that's what happened 100 years ago. And like five, six years ago, the floods were, it was the hundred year floods again. So the Boulder Creek was having all these flash floods and it, it was crazy. It was a complete flood, the whole entire town, like everything was getting shut down. And it was the morning after it had started. 
And this was right around the time we started doing the actual deliveries for restaurants. So it was, we were a lean machine. I was doing a lot of deliveries at the time. And I go down to get in my car. And as I'm walking down the stairs, I get to the lobby level. And as soon as I go in the door that goes from the lobby level down to the basement where the garage is, there's just water funneling in from the, from the roof and from the, you know, the walls. And as you're going down the stairs, you're slowly coming to the realization that the entire garage is completely underwater. And I was able to like get down and see my car completely submerged in water along with all the other cars ended up being completely totaled. The car was there underwater for five days, which was crazy. But anyway, as soon as I realized that the car was done, I quickly got my mindset back on deliveries. And me and this one driver literally took these tubes and walked all the way up to the hill. And we shut down our delivery zones outside of just campus. And for about an hour, there were certain parts of campus that were like completely flooded. And we were taking orders from restaurants on the hill to kids in the dorms. And we had tubes. And there'd be random parts on campus where we'd literally get in the tubes to ride down with the orders. It was crazy. We did it for like an hour. That is so fucking cool. And that's something that no other company coming into any of our markets will ever do or have a story to, to no chance so yeah, that's the power of a robot unless they're doing it remotely yeah which is not <laughs> as cool as dan doing it not not <laughs> close I right, guys i think that's a good wrap on stories today of our own don't you that's that was pretty phenomenal right there those are some good stories yes yeah, yeah. Absolutely. and on that note i think we should dive into sir richard charles nicholas branson Born on July 18th, 1950. This guy, I don't even know where to start. I mean, his what I loved about, uh, just to summarize, uh, losing my virginity, he really breaks down. He starts in a, in a hot air balloon at, in the beginning of the story, but then really just breaks down his whole life story, which when you really think about it, it was fascinating because you could tell from an early age his family was so tight knit and natural risk takers. Like his mom, there there was a story at, at four years old. She just decided that he had to figure out how to get home, and just dropped him off away. Well, and that was an, that was another time shortly after. At yeah, at twelve years old, she just was like, "Oh, you need to go to this place. It's fifty miles. Figure it out. Here's some sandwiches for the road." And his aunt uh, Joycey, who he looked up to got him to learn how to uh, teach himself how to swim by betting him or holding 10 shillings out in front of him. This whole family vacation, he couldn't swim. On their drive home, he spots a river and ends up convincing his dad to stop so he could show his whole family he could swim, earn the 10 shillings. So from a young age, Richard Branson was a natural risk taker. I think his family had a lot to do with that. And it was cool. Even his dad ended up diving in, worrying that his son was going to drown. And that, that was a cool visual. So that, that was really the early uh, stages of his life. And he ended up, I thought it was cool. They sent him to boarding school, which is really where his entrepreneurial ways took off because it was, it was a strict school. Um, he clearly was a guy that he was dyslexic, which I thought was interesting. Just like 
last week with Damon John. He wasn't a guy that really took an interest in the classroom, wasn't a great student. He was a great athlete, but he ended up getting injured. And just like in the 11 Rings book, it, it was a blessing in disguise, like Phil Jackson's injury allowed him to learn how to coach. Uh, Richard Branson's sports injury, having a knee injury, really didn't focus on athletics after that, even though he was a phenomenal athlete that won a bunch of high school awards early on. It made him realize, oh, I have to think about something else. So he ended up coming up with a student magazine as a, I, I believe he was a sophomore at the boarding school. It was in, he started it in 1966 and his first uh, launch of it was 1968. And he started it with a buddy of his. And I'm trying to find where the name was here. It was called the, uh, it's called the student, the, the student, student. Yeah. the student. So what was cool was at first it was literally just a student magazine. It reminded us me of our business. He had to actually sell advertising in it. And it was interesting because the magazine evolved into a mail order record business, which I thought was cool because the magazine clearly had a, a not really an extended shelf life, but at the way end, the last edition, he ended up taking out a full page ad to help trigger the mail order record business, uh, just based on the times and what ended up happening during the magazine before he started this re uh, mail order record business, he was able to actually get interviews with Mick Jagger and R.D. Lang. And that was like the beginning of his just really success when you think about it, being able at the time, I know timing is everything in life, which he was lucky with the timing of that era with where music was. Richard Branson clearly was just a, mu a passionate music guy. That's really what I took from this entire book from the beginning. He clearly had a uh, just a profound interest in musicians and art in that fashion. And that, that's really what built his success. So from the, uh, the student, he used that magazine to advertise the popular albums that drove record sales. And his business ended up turning into, like I was saying, a mail order record business. And what ended up happening was he opened up his own record shop because what he ended up seeing was these retail shops, like the normal big retail shops that sold records were too expensive. So just like Damon John last week, the theme of, oh, I can make things for cheaper. He figured, wait a minute, I could sell records for cheaper, which he did with the mail order records. But then the demand got to the point where he's like, wait a minute, there, this is like an outlier type of thing. Uh, there's something else I could do with this. And I, I think the sense of community with Richard Branson, what I took from this whole era for him was he was trying to figure out a way to succeed, but have people around. And I think that's really where the record shop came from because what we could all attest to with our business, with the isolation randomly, uh, I think he felt that way at times with the magazine and the mail order record business. He wanted more people around, which he was getting with the magazine, but he ended up opening a record shop in London, which was really, to me, the beginning of his greatness because that's when his, the balls really came to effect with him. Uh, the, he founded Virgin Records shortly after that, which was pretty fascinating. It was with his uh, really good friend from growing up, Nick Powell, which I wanted to actually touch on too real fast, the whole not working with friends thing. He 
uh, went the opposite direction with that. Throughout his business history, he actually did work with friends. It didn't all work out, but uh, Richard Branson, time and time again in this business, went over how he knew within 30 seconds whether or not he liked a business idea and whether or not he was going to work with somebody. And I really appreciated that because I think that's all circumstantial. Um, guys, I got to get my food real fast. Can one of you continue here for yeah. one second? Yeah, I think one of uh, my favorite parts of that book and actually what you were just talking about, when he opened up the record store, what I loved was that he couldn't afford rent at the time. Um, and it was a shoe store, I believe. And the shoe store had a second floor. And he was like, all right, well, I can't afford rent, but I'm going to bring so many new customers into your store. And through the foot traffic, he was able to barter free rent from the shoe store, got it going. And obviously it, it took off. And, you know, I, I think that's, we, we do a lot of that and it's very relatable. For instance, we have, there's a Longmont like magazine publication, direct mailer that wants to um, us to participate. We don't really want to spend money on the ad, but you know, we offered them a barter where we'll give them a kickback for any new customers they acquire. So I thought that was awesome. Um, yeah. He was definitely a great negotiator and great at getting the things he wanted. It was also cool that he he, he would have gut feelings about certain things and like he, he was one of the few guys that made cre- made things the way he wanted them to be and that was kind of what drove his success and I'll turn it right back over to Mike but like when you look at what he would do with the record store he made a record store that he knew he would want to hang out at exactly and that was always his first focus with every business he did was what would I want and let me create that and then other people will probably follow and the money seemed to follow that but yeah Mike keep rolling so yeah he he ended up launching Virgin Records with his buddy Nick Powell in 1972 he came up with the name because one of his early employees basically said they were all new to business. And they were laughing because none of them were virgins anymore. It was that whole free sex era where, you know, that was a, just a big thing in Britain. And he uh, ended up leasing studio time to different artists. And his first break was with this guy, Mike Oldfield. He was an instrumentalist, like, Kind of a, it sounds like a kind of a crazy guy, honestly. He had immense success, and it was actually a cool story. Uh, Richard Branson got a Bentley from his family as a gift, and Mike Oldfield had this huge show that they, they, this was like a make or break show for Virgin Records early on. And he clearly had stage fright and ended up having zero interest in going on. So Richard Branson takes him on this drive. Uh, And, you know, he was just realizing, like, I can't push this guy to do this or he's not going to do it. So he cleverly drove past there and was like, hey, you want to drive? You want to take over here? So he lets him in the driver's seat. He starts driving and he's like, listen, how about I'm going to give you this car? And he's like, what? He's like, yeah, it's a gift. He's like, all you have to do is go on stage there and it's yours. And I, I thought that was really cool. It was cutting of him the way he was able to manage a a real near crisis in his life when you think about it. He probably would have been bankrupt if this guy didn't go on that stage. And it just goes to show how many like crucial moments he had on his rise of just putting it all out there. And I thought that moment was one of those early like, oh, stop by the river. I want to jump in and show you I could swim because he just put it on the line and figured out a way to survive that, which was amazing. So time and time again, time and time again. (laughs) Seriously. 
that ended up triggering. Mike Oldfield went on to absolutely crush it. His album, Turbular Bells, I believe it was called, was the first uh, chart-topping bestseller of Virgin Records. And it led to him signing. There was this band, the Sex Pistols, that was really controversial that ended up just putting them more on the map. They didn't make a lot of money on them, but it anchored them getting the Rolling Stones, Peter Gabriel, Japan. They got Phil Collins. And this is where luck of the draw too comes in. He ended up getting a uh, buying a country estate, Richard Branson did, where he put a recording studio called the Manor Studio. And Phil Collins at the time had just branched off from Genesis, which was the band he was in. So he was going to become a solo act and he was, you know, he wasn't a big name at all. Uh, it just so happened the Manor Studios interior was stone and Phil Collins ended up leasing out studio time from them there because the other studios were too expensive. He ended up recording in the air tonight and it, it sounded way better. The sound resonated way better in stone. He befriended the sound engineers. Next thing you know, Branson signed him to Virgin Atlantic. And that was a, a major deal, obviously, looking back with what we know. That song go, it plays in like NFL warmups throughout the, you know, every single year. It's, it's like synonymous. One of the top, uh, Phil Collins is one of the top musicians of all time, really. And it was just cool seeing how that actually came about. So he ended up, that, that was obviously the, beginning and middle of Virgin Records just popping off. Uh, he was worth about 5 million pounds uh, by the end of the 1970s, and they ended up going international heading into the 80s. And it was really cool because th his entry, the way he got into the airline industry just sums up this guy's power of improv, risk-taking, just he's very impulsive, which I think you have to be with entrepreneurship a lot of times when you have a gut feeling you have to follow it. He ended up having a flight that was canceled to a, a local flight to uh, Puerto Rico canceled when he was in the Virgin, uh, Virgin islands. And on the fly, he chartered an air, uh, uh, chartered a flight and ended up selling seats to pass to passengers that needed a ride, I think for like 39 bucks a pop. And that was the first flight that that was his real intro into the, business. Some passenger was like, oh, if you improve the service a little, you guys are onto something here. You should, you should start an airline. He's like, oh, I might just do that. And it was remarkable, like thinking, so a flight to Puerto Rico gets canceled and you're, you're starting an airline. <laughs> so when you think about this guy, he started a record label. He started an airline Two such high risk things, not to mention like after this book, Galactic Air, you know, starting missions to space. That was, Train. that wasn't, Yeah train. Like he got into all these other things. This book was published back in 98 when he was only 48 years old. So it's crazy to think about what he's accomplished in that time frame. Um, and then, you know, in the, he, with the whole airline thing, he ended up competing with British airways, nasty battles with them when Virgin air really started taking off and they had to pay him millions of dollars in legal fees. And they had some settlement, but he ended up uh, making that really work. And what ended up happening was, this reminded me of the early B-Town menus days, actually, when we figured out how were people ordering delivery, 855-IU-IU. When he first started Virgin Air, there was only one other uh, offering, like New York to London direct, that was 
any what reasonable, like Postal Express or something, I think it was called, or I don't know what the actual name is. I have to find it here. But there was an airline and he kept calling them and he couldn't even get through. And he's like, either the demand is off the route out, like off the charts here, or this company's poorly managed. Either way, I need to start this. So I thought that was really cool market research looking back. And he had to double down a lot of times over the years, though, with risks, whereas record label was in danger of going under. His airline was in danger of going under. He had to, to nagle a lot of things around. What I really took from this, and I'll then hand it to you guys, was when a lot of people, when things weren't going well, most people would scale back. He doubled down. So he was like, yeah, you have to limit the downside risk, but you have to t- make take major risks to create new things. So it kind of reminds me of what we're doing now with these content media packages we're about to start selling. It, it's about evolving or dying as the constant theme as you guys are seeing with every entrepreneur we're diving into with these books. Yeah, it was also interesting how he uh, was notoriously, and he talked about it a lot in his book, he was dyslexic. And he said that the only time he was able to understand numbers is when it was presented to him in a business sense. And if it wasn't in a sense where it was going over numbers and profits and the, the economy of the business, it didn't make any sense to him. I thought that was cool. But yeah, just to go off of what you said, I mean, the thing that I liked the most about the book was more so reading about his adventurous side and all the things that he did. And before I read the book, I didn't know much about Richard Branson, except, uh, you know, I knew Virgin, I knew Virgin Records, I knew Virgin Airlines, and that was it. But what I didn't know was I didn't know the hot, the whole hot air balloon thing. And I'm going to go into it in a little bit of detail here because that guy in total took four different major hot air balloon voyages, one which completely crossed the Atlantic Ocean, another which crossed the Pacific, and then two of failed ones to actually like travel the whole entire world. But he was essentially contacted by this Sweden guy named Purr, who just told him that he was going to do this. And Richard Branson, being the adventurous guy he is, didn't really even look into it much. He was just like, yeah, let's do it. And on the second time, the only thing that he even asked him was, do you have kids? And as soon as the guy said they had kids, he was like, all right, let's go. So anyway, they call it the Virgin Atlantic Flyer. And that was the first one to successfully complete the Atlantic. And what happened was they're going across... And they're basically going to land like in Scotland. And what happened was the balloon briefly touched ground in Northern Ireland before it shot up in the air again. And eventually they had to do a crash landing in the waves. And they both end up basically leaping out of the balloon in the middle of the ocean. But what happened was Purr leaped out before the boat went back up or before the hot air balloon went back up. So Purr is in the ocean in like the rough cold seas while Branson goes back up on the hot air balloon and Purr's obviously just at sea. Branson doesn't know what's going on. And then eventually Branson ends up coming back into sea and gets rescued. And when he gets rescued, 
dude, the helicopter that rescued him thinks that Purr's with him and then realizes that Purr's not even there. So they go and they drop off Richard Branson at some rescue boat at that point. And then they go out and they successfully end up getting Purr, who was in the water for two hours. And apparently he said that when he was growing up, his dad made him swim in like the ice cold lakes of Sweden every single day. And that's what allowed him to survive. And just, I mean, reading about it was crazy because he's talking about all the little minor things going wrong in a balloon that's traveling at 35 to 37,000 feet and how they're trying to catch certain wind velocities that they don't even know if it's going to destroy the balloon or what's going to happen. And the whole thing was just absolutely insane. And then they do they decide to do it over the pacific which was the crazier one because notoriously apparently you could land and do a crash landing in the atlantic ocean but they were told that if you tried doing that in the pacific ocean the sea would be way too rough and you would die because you wouldn't be able to get rescued and they were essentially saying like listen you're either going to do some sort of crash landing at sea in which case you're going to die or you're probably going to do a crash landing in the middle of the night on land in which case you might die too and even they still ended up doing it and that voyage got pushed back a full year they were originally going to leave from japan and the day that they were going to leave like the whole entire balloon kind of just like disintegrated and they end up doing it a year later and they end up getting this balloon to in this speed current and it goes as high as 245 miles an hour i mean imagine being in a balloon and going 245 miles an hour and at this point no one had ever done that no one ever broke successfully into the pacific current is what they call it when you get like above 35,000 feet and you get into this like massive current that allows them to go that fast and their fear was when they would get into the current the current would essentially destroy the balloon before the actual capsule of it got into the current because imagine like the material on a balloon and you're drifting up and then all of a sudden like you go into this 250 mile an hour wave essentially and it needs to like bring it all up there together and that's not exactly what it did they kind of like got knocked around and they were sideways but it essentially allowed them to like even it out so they successfully did it and then they sort of did like a crash land in some frozen lake in the middle of Canada and survived. And then they ended up doing another one where they tried flying across the whole world, but it wasn't successful. But I mean, that was the part. I'm like reading that. I'm holding my breath throughout the whole time. I mean, he also tried crossing the ocean in one of the fastest ships and that sunk. And you're like reading about him sinking out at sea. And it's like, damn, it was almost like like I wrote down in my notes, like he kind of was unlucky. (laughs) Like he would go on all these epic adventures that seemed to always go south for him. And obviously he ended up living, but you know, I I loved the book. It it was exhausting reading about it because just imagining this guy doing all these things, but he's such a damn legend. And the other thing is he's obviously from Europe and the way he talks about things, it's so different than these other guys because he's got obviously a British accent and he uses certain words like mum instead of mom. Yeah, just like all all the, the way he would talk about things and the way he talked about women. And I, I kind of all summed it up to, there was a part right in the middle of the book and it, it really summed up 
him as a person to me. And basically what happened was he goes to Japan to try and kind of like figure out some things. This was early on when he was just doing the record stuff. And he goes to Japan trying to just meet with like some high level media executives, unsure where it's really going to go. And when he lands, they tell him to go to these certain hotels to stay. And he quickly realizes that the hotels are out of his budget. So instead he gets in a taxi and he has the taxi take him to what he asked for is just a cheaper hotel. So the taxi takes him to this like unmarked building that happened to be a hotel. And he goes in the hotel and he's hanging out in the room and he sees that they offer a massage. So he calls down to get the massage. And then he says how these two Japanese women came up and ended up giving him the most erotic massage he had ever had in his whole entire life that ended up in the bathtub. And the way he was talking about it, it's so it's literally like a porno scene, but it's coming out of his mouth in such a soothing way where it's like, oh, Richard Branson right now is describing a threesome that he had in a hotel in Japan. But somehow it's like just sounding all elegant because it's coming out of his mouth. And and there were literally like 12 to 13 situations just like that where, you know, he would casually steal someone's wife and just not really make a big deal about it or something like that. And even when he said like the like one his time, second wife, you mean? <laughs> yeah, that is what I was talking about. The second wife or like when he opened the door at the manor to find a man with a gun looking for Keith Richards, who had apparently gone off with the guy's wife. And he argued that neither of them were at the studio. And as he was arguing in the background, he <laughs> saw Keith Richards naked with the man's wife running across the lawn. <laughs> and that was his way of like describing just how perfect life at the manor was. Like he described it as Nirvana and that was his story. And yeah, a lot awesome stuff. Yeah. I mean, you guys really did a great job summing it up. Um, but I loved how relatable he is more than any other book we're probably going to read or CEO in general. They're more like corporate minded and, and tame. He was just, he's a, he's a nut and he lived every moment. Like it's his last, even running, you know, multi-billion dollar company. He didn't care. He would do marketing stunts, like jumping off um, in Times Square, like literally just hanging in Times Square and it was a great publicity stunt. He didn't care. He would do anything uh, for marketing, for publicity and people loved it. But um, I mean, one of the biggest lessons I think that I took away is that when we have to relearn as adults is that play is so important and he loved just playing. And as we grow up, we kind of quickly forget to have fun over the seri seriousness of work and like finding a life partner, taking care of a family and all the other grown up stuff that you kind of deal with. But besides making our lives more enjoyable, a sense of play also helps us deal with anxiety. And, you know, contrary to what you'd think, it can even help us be better at all the more serious stuff. And I think he really made that clear how much, no matter what, his first thing would just be like, whatever business idea someone would pitch him would just be like, how could I make this fun? You know, you, and I also loved how every single pitch came over cocktails and they would just, you know, it instantly shoot the shit and he would just be like, yeah, let, let's go for it. Let's do this. He would decide instantly. He would be having fun. And yeah, he really kind of just 
pushed making your life enjoyable. And at the end of the day, it is just a business. And like you're saying in the beginning, you know, he did have partnerships like with his friend Nick, um, who they lost touch with, but they they are really good friends now. But he realized, you know, you have to start if you're going to start a business with a friend you have to know that it is a business and your friend, you were friends before you started the business. And as long as you can keep that mentality and be friends after, then you should do it. Um, but I love how he also turned his crazy antics for adventure into every single thing he did. So it in a philanthropic, philanthropic efforts when he would climb a mountain, um, to raise money for kids and charities like he just went all out or he biked that mountain with the electric bike is one of my favorite stories how he got to the top in like 24 minutes and everyone's like what the fuck they were worried about him first didn't think he was going to do it and he beat everyone there and then told everyone that he actually had an electric bike that he was hiding (laughs) um he was just the man I i love the book it was a great read it was a a a big book to read in a week but um it was awesome I, I enjoyed every every moment of it. Yeah, he has quite the life. It was a bit, very big book. And I think it's it's so easy when you think about the Kobe Bryant livelihood that he created for himself and others. And even same with Richard Branson. When you live a life like that, it's much easier to storytell. I, I think that's really... And that we could take a lot from that even when we're building out this content and this content media company within our company. There's a lot to be said for that. So let, let's keep having fun times and being spontaneous because that's when a lot of the best content is created. It's definitely true that like thinking back to Bob Iger's book, his stories were about board meetings and yeah. they would get or my heart racing. Dull. I was like, man, this is a, this is an intense board meeting right here. This, guy, <laughs> this, guy's got, this guy's got a big meeting ahead of him today. And then you're reading around Richard Branson you're like, Oh my God! This balloon's falling out of the sky at thirty-five thousand feet in the middle. Exactly. Of the He's not worrying. It. Does he have a tie on? Not a not a chance. No, it was uh, yeah, it was crazy. And yeah, the uh, the reading a book a week thing. I'm still transitioning into it. It's been hard for me. I, I've been kind of kicking my ass on like Sunday and Mondays, and yeah. I gotta yeah, I gotta get in the habit of like Mike. I know you say you read like an hour every morning. Because here's the thing, these books on average are about seven hours. So if we read an hour, this one, day, this one, this one was, was a longer than seven hours. But yeah, it's I think also, what's up, Corey? Yeah, this book, like on Audible, was 21 hours. So this one was at easier a, at a normal me. person, right? I had an advantage because I read like the a lot of this book when I was in Mexico. So like I got to kind of you know finish it and like go over certain points. But there's no doubt I've been. Like waiting till Thursday to start the book, and I'm I destroy myself over the weekend trying to finish these. Well, I books. think part of like Corey's done a phenomenal job lining up Brunch Boys as our first guest in two weeks. I don't think we need to be doing these every week. The but bu- a new book yeah. every week. Like once we start, yeah, yeah like maybe week. it'll be every other week, so we can have a guest on every other week. That should be really what we're hoping for here. Yeah, I think it depends on the book. Like this one just happened to be one. I'm glad. Honestly, it was awesome. And I felt like it was just so much information to retain in a week because I was just trying to read it so fast. Yeah. But um, I mean, the stories were incredible. Like I'm going to go back and read some chapters over that like I, I kind of forgot about because I was just trying to read so fast. But yeah, a book like that, maybe we do every other week. 
but you know, some of like the the Damon John book was super easy to read. And yeah, read. and maybe we think about that too with some of the selections where we'll highlight certain books that can be a two week or you know. We could also a thought I had. I don't know what you guys think about this. We can consider like breaking up the book where like Mike, you cover the first third. I cover the middle. Corey covers the last third. I don't know if we want to do that, but that way there's like parts of the book that we really need to know. I don't know. Actually talking that out loud. I don't like that. I want to read the whole book. It's going to be tough for you if you don't read the whole thing. Yeah. Scratch that idea. That was a bad idea. But yeah, we, I think we could just, (laughs) yeah, we could kind of feel out. What's our book next week, actually. Yeah. I was just going to ask that too. Elon Musk, right? Another big book. That's so, another yeah. book that I've already read. That I will. Just I already read, read that too. Maybe Corey, I read, you read that too. One? De- yeah, you, I, I, you gave it to me. I read that in Denver in like 2015, I think. Yeah, that's the thing. I read it long enough ago where, like, the only thing I could recall from that book is that that guy read two books a day and just spent all day in the library. Now, I remember a lot of things from that book actually, but yeah. I would be able. To, should we do him next week? Uh, we're good. Or, you have the list. What's up? Do you have the list of books? What that we initially did? Yeah, I think we were like up until Musk was like the last one. Oh yeah, let's do shoe, let's do shoe dog. Read oh, that shoe show. dog. Yeah, a, yeah. Let's do shoe dog. Yeah. All right. Let's do shoe dog. That way we could have a week where we get started on the book that we're doing in two weeks, since we've already all. Well, in two weeks dog. we have brunch boys. There won't be a book. But I mean, that's like. Well, that's shouldn't we still? All right, no, no, so no we're not. Good. Yeah, I don't think we should do books on guest weeks. How do we? That, uh, we could get out. We could ro- after we record. Yeah, yeah. How do we? Now, wanna, I was say, how do we want to like do it with uh, the brunch boy interview? Do we want to get him on right away? Do we want to like? How are we going to do that? I think we'll out. We'll we'll spend time together planning it beforehand. Like well, I, think I think we should we'll, get. What's up? Yeah. I think we should do that as its own thing and then edit it into the podcast where, you know what I mean? Where we have our podcast and then we have a podcast with him as two separate things. And then we edit them together. Yeah. 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 So just like, we'll send him a link. He'll be able to click into same like this. Yeah. Yeah, So we can still do the book and the same thing and then we'll have our thing and then we'll just do the interview with him and then merge them. That's kind of what I think. Like we should still have our normal podcast and still cover our book, and we'll now just have an interview segment. And now we also, guys, have some great stories to turn into videos here. Yeah, yep. I mean, Dan, I, you want to highlight that a little before we shut down here? Well, part of the reason that we wanted to do story time, is, yeah. Have you ever seen Corey? You've definitely seen this Blitz TV, Dan Bilzerian's. Yeah. yeah. So that was. I think what originally like sparked the idea and of just the notion of us turning short little fun stories that we've encountered into like animated videos. And I figured if we got on a podcast and went in a rotation telling story after story, we would have the audio for the videos and then we could send the audio and get like a cool animated reenaction where like, for example, you and Mike are going to Samsung's house in the middle of the woods in Bloomington. And this is like an animated sketch. And all of a sudden, like you're walking in with pizzas, you're hanging out with like the basketball team, you're making Jay Billis laugh. And that's like, that's a little short story. Boom. Yeah, done. I love that. And Corey, yeah. that's also, we could, then we were thinking with the clients, getting them to record their own story to make these videos very easy to translate. Got it. You see what you, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, of course. Makes so sense. yeah, that could be a, a big thing for seamlessness with this whole thing. The podcast so now, transforming yeah. into the ad. Now that we have the stories, we might want to redo the voiceovers. So it's like, now that we know, like, hey, here's what we're doing, where we literally write out word for word what their story is. So there's no, it's like a very scripted, not not fake, but like, you know, it's just on point, like the talking where it's like. I, I think tonight was pretty on point. Well, we'll go back and listen. Honestly, we could probably just edit the clips that we did to the point where we're on point. Yeah. Yeah, That's what's great about this. Yeah, it's more authentic that way. It's like this is like authentic note taking when you think about it. It's why you have like journalists having recorders with them. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's why people love podcasts. Yeah. Because it's authentic. Well, this was a great one, guys. Had fun. I'm uh, my laptop's on 1%. So this could be a. Pissing my pants. We also have a lot of like we we had a lot of great stories there that I think were really funny that'll turn into videos. We did so many so many more too. Everyone ate their weedies this morning. Bootstrapped in the trenches, making moves, going all out every day. Handle business. You know that the hustle don't stop. Got my team. Let's get it. Reviewing books and talk stocks. Steady, keep it moving. So you gonna wanna tune in. Get low down. It's an app. Get local food on demand. Delivery right to your home. Everything in the Palm of your hand took hard work and dedication. Come through, join the conversation. This is history up in the making. We just want to be an inspiration. Hey, let's go.